uh, our pastor, John Lieb. John, come on up here. How about a round of applause for John? Now, I see that, that you got the memo that we're wearing blue jeans and our sort of check shirts here. Uh, we tend to sort of, you know, vibe on that. So. We're brothers from another mother. Yeah, and I'm not, I'm not brown-nosing here. I'm just telling you, I just, just like the way you look. <laughs> Thank you, Jay. Right. We've got some uh, symbiotic stuff happening there. Figure out that sound. I'm trying to get my voice of God in the movie The Ten Commandments. Okay, it's not working there. Uh, looking for something. Okay. There we go. Sorry. I'm having technical problems. Hold on. No. <laughs> yeah. Usually when I have technical problems, I just ask one of my grandkids to come over and fix it. But uh, this isn't working. Okay. Uh, well, all right. Uh, Got to change part of what I'm going to do here. Well, uh, how many of you guys know that this book is full of some pretty wild stories, right? Anybody else read this book? <laughs> okay, so there's some wild stuff in here. Not, there's not only wild stuff in here, there, there are some pretty interesting people in here. How many of you know that? Okay, hold it. Okay, let's get the amen. Okay, all right, let's get Ready to do it again. How many of you know there's really interesting people in the Bible? Yeah. Okay, all right. The, the tape is broken here, so it's not going to work, this message. I'm trying to get our church a little more interactive because uh, we're just a bunch of, like, boring white people here. Anyway, uh, one of... <laughs> just so we should have a boring pastor, <laughs> Let's go. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, the peanut section. So, uh, the gospel also, not only is there strange people, strange ideas, but, but the gospel advances uh, notions today that people find uh, unusual, to say the least. Sometimes they find them just completely unpalatable and they're opposed to them. And today I want, to, I want to read a little story that you might have heard of before, and it's in the Gospel of Mark, and it's, it's, a, it's a story about a woman who does something really unusual. And so if you have a Bible with you, if you could open it to Mark chapter 12, uh, there are, if you don't have a Bible with you, in the chair seat in front of you, there's paperback Bibles. And they didn't have cell phones back in Jesus' day, so <laughs> he wasn't going to hear that noise. We're going to read in Mark 12, verse 41. It says that Jesus sat opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Now, in the Jewish temple in first century uh, Palestine, they had, according to scholars, they had 13 huge sort of uh, horn-shaped bowls and in the court of the women, where men would come through first before they went into their part of the temple, they would have the treasuries where the people would come and give their offerings. So the women could give offerings, men could get offerings, the, the, uh, the outsiders could if they were allowed in there. And so it says that uh, many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins 
worth only a fraction of a penny. Now, what I'm going to give you today is, uh, because I know it's Christmas coming, you guys are already broke, we're going to give you two pennies each today, all right? Don't ever say you didn't get anything at the vineyard. And I just want you to hold on to these, seriously. Just as you get them, we're going to pass these little baskets around. And we didn't, we didn't spare an expense in the preparation of this message today. So it says she put in two very small copper coins. Now, in the, in the currency of that time, these were the... These coins were one... Each coin was one sixty-fourth of a denarius, which was a day's wage. So just imagine, this woman did not have much, but she put everything that she had in the treasury. Jesus called his disciples to him, and he, he said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything all she had to live on. Now, we didn't read this section before this, but Jesus is using this opportunity to, to make a contrast between people who were really well off and they were just putting huge amounts of money into the temple treasury, but they were putting huge amounts of money that they could live without. It, it, it didn't impact their lives in any meaningful way to contribute to the treasury. But this woman came and she took her two pennies Two small pennies. And, and in the Greek, it means, that the, the Greek literally means her whole life. So she just wasn't putting a couple of pennies in. She was putting in her all that she had, her whole life. So a lot of us would think, you know, what is Jesus doing looking at, like, what people give? That's like private. But that's a very cultural thing for us because we think that money is this private thing. But really, money is, is a central part of our life. And it's a, it's a, if you see in Scripture, they all treated money like it was something that everybody should know about. And when they gave, they gave publicly. And some of you go, well, didn't Jesus say, you know, don't, don't uh, let your right hand know what your left hand's doing? That's true, but he was saying to correct the people who were rich who were putting in all this money and they were kind of like waving the money before they gave. Hey, everybody look! You know, I'm throwing some money in here uh, so that they would uh, gain reputation from that as being generous people when they weren't. Jesus wasn't saying don't make a show of, of how you give. He was saying don't do it for the wrong reasons. Because things that we can do that are good that we can do with the right motives, can encourage other people. So Jesus never corrected anybody for doing anything in public that was a good deed. He just said, don't do it so that people will think that you're a good person. Do the right things so that people encourage themselves to do the right things. Which, you know, that kind of makes common sense. But we have this notion in the United States that you know, nobody should know anything about our money. Well, when, you know, you go on Facebook and you know everything else about everybody, right? I mean, you know where, what color toilet paper they're using. I mean, there's all kinds of wild things in, in social media today. But gosh, don't, don't get into the area of our money and what I do with my money. Because a lot of times it's not the part of our life that we're the proudest about, which is really, it shouldn't be that way. And so this story really addresses that. And I think... If we, if, if an average 
modern person was plucked out of a mall and they were standing next to Jesus and Jesus said, look at this woman who just gave everything she had. Are you guys all holding on to your two cents? You got okay. She gave everything she had. I can tell you three responses that I'm pretty sure one of the, any person you pluck out would, would have ordinarily have responded in one of these three ways. They would have said this. They, they would have considered this woman's devotion foolish for, for several reasons. One of them, they would have probably said, giving your money away is wasting your money. If you give your money away, it's just wasting it. Secondly, they would have said, I live by the rule that take care of you and your own because nobody else will, right? Well, that's not entirely nonsensical, but that's a very common idea that I'm, I'm supposed to take care of myself and not worry about other people. Third, a lot of people would say, you should only be generous when you can afford it. And so the first group of people who say, if you're giving your money away is wasting your money, the truth is they just don't believe that generosity has any place in life and that it has anything to do with whether our life is enriched in any way by being generous. And that's a form of unbelief. And a lot of times, even we as believers, we don't believe that there's a God who's providential and, and good and generous and that the, the, the life that he designed us to live is a life that's designed and wired with generosity in it. And that if we live life as he planned it, that we will flourish and we will have the ability to be more and more generous to people. But unbelief will block us from seeing that. We'll think we're just wasting our money. We're just throwing our money away if we give it away. Secondly, the person who would say, take care of you and yours if you don't, no one else will, well, that's fear. And a lot of times we are controlled by fear. And we hear things in Scripture, and our unbelief and our fear stop us from even considering whether there's any validity and value to what we might be hearing. Third, you should only be generous when you can afford it. Well, the truth is there's a tinge of greed in that. Because you, can, you could always be at a place where you could say, I can never afford it. I can never afford to be generous, no matter how much you have. And the truth is, we can always afford to be generous. But unbelief and fear and greed will keep us from this life of flourishing that God has for us. So Jesus draws attention to her gift. And he drew attention to her. He drew his disciples over her. In other words, the people that were the ones who were beginning to teach other people like he was. They were beginning to be the ones who were leading and influencing and making disciples. But Jesus was saying, you guys, look at this woman's generosity. I want you to, to glean from her example something. And I think first thing we can draw from her example was she understood what a friend of mine calls the God cycle of generosity. That, you know, you can summarize that over and over in the Bible, it's summarized real simply. Uh, like in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, it, Paul writes, he says, don't be deceived. In other words, don't be fooled by the way think, people think around you who don't believe in generosity. 
God can't be mocked. Whatever you sow, you're going to reap. Now, people in an agricultural-based society like that, they understood. If you had two cows, and you took care of those cows, those cows were going to multiply. And if you took care of the cows that were beget from those cows, and those cows generationally, pretty soon you'd have a huge herd, and you know, you're going to have losses and things, but if you steward them faithfully, it's like God has wired into the system of this world all around us, this sense of multiplication and generosity. What he says is, it doesn't just work without our involvement in it. And the truth is, whatever we sow, this is a principle in every area of your life, but you could take these two cents. If you sow these two cents in generosity like this woman did, you're going to reap something. And, and what this woman understood because of her heritage and her people she knew that God was good and generous, that he was powerful, he's large and he's in charge, as one of my friends says, and that he has designed life to flourish when we live it his way. And this woman got it. And here's four things you can say about sowing and reaping. You sow and you reap this way. Whatever you sow, you're going to reap more of that. The same thing. If you sow an apple seed, you're not going to get watermelon. You get what you sow. Secondly, you get from where you sow. If I sow in my field, it's not going to grow in someone else's field. It's going to grow in my field. Third, whatever I sow in my field there's going to be delay between when I sow it and when I reap from it. So there's three things. The fourth thing, and this is the wild one, the wildest one in our thinking, is when I sow, I'm always going to reap more than I sow. We can see that in nature. You take a corn seed and you plant it in the ground, a whole stalk grows with multiple heads of corn on it, each having hundreds of potential seeds. It's this sense of multiplication that's built into everything. But God says the way we involve ourselves in it can short-circuit it. Or it can flourish and operate the way it's meant to. And so this woman, Jesus points to her, and she was a widow. And in the Old Testament, there was multiple stories about widows and her situation who understood or they experienced the cycle of God's generosity. When they got involved in it, they flourished. I'm going to read you one story real quick from 1 Kings. There's a famous prophet named Elijah. And uh, during a time of famine where, where God was disciplining Israel, it's in 1 Kings 17, starting at verse 7, if you want to read it with me. Uh, there hadn't been any rain, and, and there was, the, the food was drying up, the animals were dying, people were leaving you know, trying to find a place to live because how desperate they were. And so God had been providing for Elijah in this, along this brook where he would drink water from the brook and God would bring him meat and bread. And these birds, it was a supernatural provision. Well, at a certain point, the brook dried up and God says this to him. He says, "Um, I go at once to Zarephath of Sidon, which was one of the enemies of Israel. So he was saying, go and live in the country where everybody hates you. 
and they don't believe in your God. They serve gods of death and violence and destruction and you know, all kinds of cruel things. But go there because I've, I've ordered a widow to provide for you. Now, that doesn't sound very promising, right? Time of famine, widow is going to provide for me? This is, what, this is the news you've got for me, God? I'm, I'm already drinking out of a brook and you know, the birds are bringing me food and I'm having to like, I clean off the bread after the ravens let go of it. And uh, it's, you know, he, okay, now I'm going to get food from the widow. So it says, he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and said, would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? And as she was going to get it, he said, and bring me please a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. Now, these, these are the kinds of stories that this widow in Jesus' time was raised on. She heard these stories of the God of her fathers and how he cared for widows and orphans and the poor and, and everybody. And so she said, I only have a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son so that we may eat it and then die. This is the widow that's supposed to provide for Elijah. She can't even provide for her own household, right? It's not a very promising picture. Here's what Elijah says to her. And this is the, the thing God, this is the thing I think that this widow had ringing in her ears and that we have to hear. Elijah says to her, it's a bold thing. He says, don't be afraid. When you start thinking about your life, when you start thinking about your finances, probably the biggest obstacle, I think even more than greed and unbelief, is fear. That fear grips us. And God's inviting us into this cycle of generosity and, we, and our fear stops us. And so here's what Elijah says. Don't be afraid. Go home and do as you've said. But first, first make a small cake of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me and then make something for yourself and your son. So he said generosity first to a widow who is about to starve. Now there are people who are unscrupulous who do that. They manipulate people through the media. They, they manipulate them interpersonally and, and they exploit them. But watch what happens here. This is not that. We don't, this is the thing I, I've learned in my life. This advice of Elijah is revolutionary. And we only let fear keep us from experiencing the promise that's in this. He says, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, the jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. She was generous. She took a risk. She, whatever portion that she was going to make for her and her son, she divided it instead of in two into thirds. And then she gave it to Elijah and it says, for the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. The reason why this woman 
in Jesus' day and why people ever since then can live differently if they have this kind of faith is that God is still like this. That Jesus sat there looking at this woman and it was so amazing the faith he saw in her because it's the faith he'd seen all throughout history by the most unusual people. The teachers of the law that were just in, mentioned previous to this passage we read, the teachers of the law that everybody thought were so amazing because they could teach the Bible so well, they could quote scripture, but they didn't have real faith. Because real faith is found in the lesson, the example of this woman. And so here's the lesson. This is the point to take away from this. That entering the cycle of God's generosity will bring amazing flourishing, but it will be costly. So when you enter into the cycle of God's generosity, you will begin to flourish, but it's costly. So let's break this down for a second. Christian Smith and Hilary Anderson were two sociologists that worked at the University of Notre Dame. And Christian Smith used to work at the University of North Carolina. And uh, very, he's, he's written lots of research. Uh, he leads the uh, Public Center for the Study of Religion at the University of Notre Dame. He's a world-renowned sociologist. They're always doing research about uh, human behavior with respect to faith. So they just did this exhaustive study that, and he, and he wrote a book about it, which I've, I've been reading, called The Paradox of Generosity. And it, it says, The Paradox of Generosity, the subtitle is, Giving We Receive, Grasping We Lose. And what they do in this study is they, they go and they researched people's behavior with respect to being generous. And they identified financial giving, uh, four different types of generosity that people practiced in the financial giving was giving at least 10% of, of your money away to charity of some kind, church, whatever. And they asked people all these questions and did it, for, it was quite an extensive survey. And here's what they found out. They found out that people who give at least 10% of their income and practice other specific forms of personal generosity like caring for neighbors and their family members uh, a number of things like this, and you can read about them in the book, they have statistically significant, marked increases in well-being in these five dimensions. Those people who are more generous say they're way more happy than the people who aren't generous. Number two, their physical health is significantly better than people who aren't generous. Third, people who are more generous are less depressed. In other words, people who aren't generous are far more prone to be depressed about their life. Third, uh, fourth, I'm losing the number here. Fourth, I'm getting, oh, my finger cramped. <laughs> Gosh, use the left hand. The fourth distinct difference between people who were generous and people who weren't was the people who were generous had a greater sense of purpose and significance in their life. They said, I think my life matters more than people who weren't generous. They said, my life doesn't have much purpose or significance. Fifth, the last one was people who were generous had this deep and abiding and growing 
desire to grow personally. In other words, the outcome of generosity impacted them in these, all these dimensions. And I looked at, you can look in the book and you can see the, the graphs and the, the comparisons in there. It's pretty amazing to see how much difference a life that's generous is experienced than a life that isn't. And it's experienced in very specific ways. Now, I'll get to that in a second. And so, this woman could take her two pennies and give them away, give her whole life away, because she understood that through the history of her people and her own experience, God would enable her to flourish despite the, what seemed to be a risky decision. And this is where the challenging part is. And this is what they found. I want to read you a, a part of what they said in the book. Is entering God's cycle of generosity not, not, does not only lead to, to personal well-being, but it's also costly. And this is what they said in early in one of the chapters. The key question is this. Is greater generosity measured in various ways positively associated with greater well-being? The clear and consistent answer is yes. Generous practices of different sorts are positively related to greater well-being of different kinds. That positive relationship is not absolute nor overwhelming, but it's clear, consistent, and statistically significant, strong enough to make a real difference in people's lives. Our emphasis here to begin to give away part of our story is on practices of generosity compared to one-time acts. Without matters, excuse me, uh, what matters about practices compared to one-time acts is that they are repeated behaviors that involve recurrent intention and attention. Those are the kinds of expressions of generosity that actually enhance people's well-being. That is because practices of generosity, financial giving, volunteering, relational, and neighbor neighborly generosity have the capacity to shape people and processes of human formation over time. So when you're generous consistently in this broad range of ways, including financially, it shapes you as a person over time into a better person and a happier person and a healthier person and a a person with more purpose, a person who's less depressed, which is an epidemic in our society. He goes on, by contrast, one-time or infrequent acts of generosity seem not to be associated with higher well-being. These include being an organ donor, estate giving through wills, lending possessions, donating blood infrequently. How all of this works and what it means will be explained in chapters as it unfolds. So he's, they go into it in more detail. Uh, this woman showed, showed us is if we don't give, when we have a little... We're not going to give more later when we have more. That's just the truth. I just tell you from my own experience. When I, I don't make a whole lot now, but when I made a lot less, and Kathy and I prayed and decided we're going to be generous and, and across the spectrum like we've been taught, and we've seen other people do this, it was hard when you don't have as much. But it's just as hard when you have more. In fact, statistics show us if you graph income and you compare it to giving as people make more money 
their giving goes down. Isn't that wild? But that's what Jesus saw in the first century. The rich come in and they pour all this money into the offering, but they're giving out of their excess. They don't feel it at all. But poor people feel it. Now, it doesn't make poor people in general more righteous than rich people because our righteousness is all a gift from Christ. But it shows you that maybe what you're depending on as you gain more wealth and make more money is less on God and more on what you have in your bank account. And then how you live your life begins to reflect that. I have a friend who uh, we're trying to work out the schedule. He's going to come and speak for us here in January. And he runs a non-governmental organization, NGO. And they do developmental work, sustainable development uh, programs all in every continent in the United, um, all around the world except for Antarctica. I think they'll get there eventually. And his name's Tim. And Tim was telling me this story about this idea of generosity. And their organization is called... The Reckoning International. It's a long uh, explanation for how they got that, that uh, title for their name. It's, it's pretty interesting. But he said, listen, we believe that sustainable development has to be founded on the cycle of generosity. The generosity, and it has to be generosity that costs something. And so the first project they did years ago when they launched it, was a group of these men who wanted to had this vision for this organization that they'd already sort of dabbled with uh, some little projects. They said, we want to get this thing started full bore. So they went to Nepal and they bought a group of men out of slavery. Believe it or not, there's, there's modern day slavery going on all over the world. They bought this group of men out of modern day slavery and they said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to give you land to farm for you and your families. We're going to buy you the, the rice seedlings. And if you will stay on this land for a year and farm it and take care of it, we'll give you the land. We'll give you the deed afterwards. All you have to do is you're going to have to work the land. And, and it'll give you, they, they had done the research, they'd done their homework, and each uh, piece of land would produce enough rice to feed their family and to, to sell to take care of their family for a year. And they wanted to stake these men. And some of the men that they uh, bought out of slavery ended up wanting to leave and go someplace else. But they bought this land as, as a fallback in case the men really wanted to stay in that area where they had lived. So they're in this village. Uh, and they all, they all agree to it. They're just incredibly happy. Why are you doing this? They said, well, you know, our, this is, our God's been generous to us and blah, blah, blah. So the men said, okay, now they, you know, they had to work through a translator, so the, whatever the Nepalese dialect that they spoke was, uh, they gave him the land, and one of the men was literate, and so they were asking this one man, who they, 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 his name was Thagu, Thagu could speak and write uh, English, and uh, he was literate, and so they contracted with him to start writing gospel portions. So over the course of this year, he's translating scripture, and he comes to believe in Jesus. Well, partway into the, right, right when they were about to plant, the, all the farmers, that they came to Tim and his team and they said, listen, 
you know, thank you for doing this, but if you would, would you give us money for fertilizer? Because this land is not going to produce very well unless we fertilize it, because it, the, the land wasn't great land, it, it, you know, in this whole area around this village. And Tim said, we don't have any money. Uh, we don't have anything else to give you. You know, we, 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 we emptied the piggy bank out, and we saved all this money ourselves to do this. And because they were just American, this guy, my friend Tim, was a pastor uh, up in the, the Millersburg area. And so they just didn't have the money to give them. Plus, they were a little afraid that if they gave them everything, they would undermine, you know, the sense of responsibility that they were trying to, to build and ownership. So the men said, okay. Well, Tim didn't know it, but Thagu went to the men. Now, he's become a, a follower of Jesus, and he hasn't told Tim yet and their team. He said, I went, and, uh, I, I went to the, the farmers, and I said, listen, th- these Christians worship a God called the Lord of the Harvest. And I encourage you to dedicate your land to the Lord of the Harvest, their God, and ask his blessing on your land. And so they said, you know, that was a, that's a big deal. When you dedicate what you have to, a, to some God, that means you have to serve that God if he follows through and takes care of you. So, you know, the whole uh, season, the harvest season comes around, they come back to Tim and they said, listen, you know, we stayed on the land. And so Tim says, okay, we're going to give you, you know, the, the, the deeds to the land. And the men said, oh, okay, th- thank you. And they gave them all this money. And they said, what are you doing? He said, well, when our harvest came in, we brought in way more than our neighbors who had fertilized the land. And Thagu told us that your God was called the Lord of the harvest. And so we dedicated, we all went out, we all went to each of our friends' lands and we prayed over the land and we dedicated it to to the the God of the Christians, the Lord of the harvest. And we asked him to bless us. And then along the way, as we saw the blessing coming, because this is part of the the way that they're wired, we began to see he was the only true God. And so they said, now we're followers of Jesus now. And so we want to give you, we've read the book, parts of the book now, and we know we're supposed to give part of it back. It's his, it's not ours. So here's 10% of all that we've made. And Tim said, no, 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 we can't take that for you. And they said, we will not touch it. It's not ours. We've read the book. It's God's. And they said, we can't, we ha- whatever he's given us, it has to, you've taught us about generosity. We want to give this to you to give to other people so you can help them the way you helped us. And so, Tim, that right there was how they launched this program. And they have uh, fisheries. They have, they, they do, uh, they have places where they make knives. Uh, they, they farm hogs. They have huge uh, fish farms in, in Southeast Asia. And it's all started with generosity. Where people make a costly gift to other people, and they teach them, you can flourish if what you have is multiplied in the lives of others, and you give a significant portion of it, at least 10% of it away. And their organization is flourishing all over the world. And Tim will come and tell you some of the stories. But entering the cycle of generosity is going to cost you something. It costs that woman a lot. So, I want you to think for a second. Draw this to a close. Jesus is sitting and looking at this woman, and he's making a whole lot of the fact that she was 
becoming poorer. But the disciples at this point didn't get it. Didn't get about her gift, but they, they, they saw how amazing it was for her to be that generous. But here's the thing. The one, the one, capital O, one, who became poor for us that we might become rich is the one that was sitting there looking at the woman giving. The one who emptied himself for our behalf on the cross so we could be forgiven, so we could have a new life. He's the one that's sitting there in the middle of this and nobody really sees the power of this moment. But this woman with her eyes of faith, even though she doesn't really probably know who Jesus is at that point, nobody did. You know, who do, do we really know now? But he's there at that point. He is the one who God has sent into the world and who's completely emptied himself out on our behalf. And so sometimes we think because of, we live with human shame, it's just part of our, our experience in life. We think when Jesus is looking at the people giving money, he's like scowling, like, look at these dirty, rotten sinners, you know. Jesus never looks at people that way. Even though there's this, you can read scripture, he's disappointed with people's behavior, but he loves us. I believe when he was looking at people giving in there, I, I, I believe he was looking with this smile on his face, with this anticipation Will they buy into this thing? This generosity cycle that I've, I've taught them from the, the beginning of their, their existence as a people, the Jewish people were, were formed when God came to this Jewish, I mean this non-Jewish man, Abraham, and, and it says that God blessed him. And he says, I'm going to make you a blessing. That that was in their DNA. It's in our DNA. But the thing is, we will never live that way on our own. We just don't. We all have this depravity that we live with where Christian philosophers like Augustine talked about how our problem is is that, that we turn in on ourselves. We curve in on ourselves instead of living outwardly the way we're meant to. And we, we have what we have and we're afraid to let go of even two pennies. And some of us were afraid to let go of way more than that. But what this woman modeled was the way into the cycle of generosity is really simple. It's not easy, but it's simple. But it gets easier as you live in it. Jesus already emptied himself and did, did it for us. And if we will entrust our lives to him and follow him, we can live in this cycle of generosity because he made the biggest, he, he suffered the biggest loss of all for our sake. And so whatever we're giving up is nothing compared to what he's given up. He's blazed a trail for us. If we ask him into our lives and we begin to follow him, generosity will begin to come out of us if we keep following him. If we buy into his invitation, if we look at his faith and see him looking at us with our money and realize that he isn't looking at us with anger because of what he's given us, he wants to give us more than what we have. You've got one cow, he wants you to have two cows. I don't mean he wants you to be rich. He wants you to understand the joy 
and the flourishing that comes when you begin to enter the cycle of generosity and you give away to other people. That's the goal. Not only that you'd have enough, but that you would care about people who don't have enough. You care about the advance of the gospel. You care about injustice in the world and, and, and what we can do about it. We don't have to fix all of it. We can each do the old... We can, we can do what they say about how to eat an elephant, one bite at a time. That's all we're supposed to be responsible for. It's just what's in front of us. So Jesus invites us, but here's the thing that you have to get out of this. You can't give anything consistently until you first give God everything. You're not going to enter into a real life of generosity unless you give God everything first. You make him owner of everything. Because if he's owner, just like those men in Nepal, oh, by the way, Fagu that I mentioned, he's now the pastor of the church in that village and they have 1,400 people in his church. The man, I got pictures, if you want to come up afterwards, I'll show you pictures Tim sent me. Of, of them right after they bought him out of slavery and then later on as, as he's gotten a little older and he's pastoring this large church. And all of it came out of generosity, but you have to give him everything first. Just like this woman, you give him everything. God will constantly bring you to a point in your life where you need to surrender everything again. Then you live out of that and then you get invited to surrender everything again and rediscover. Because you may think, oh my gosh, it's so hard to let go of everything. Do you know how much do you know how much we worry and stress about this? Do you realize how much in the last year you've stressed about this? I promise you, Jesus wants you to live with a lot less stress. But every time I start getting stressed out about this, the Lord speaks to me and says, you're taking back what you gave me. Give it back to me again. Give it all back to me. And you won't worry the way you are now. And Kathy and I will get together and we'll go, I go, are you stressing out? Yeah, I'm stressing out. I'm stressing out too. You know what I think that we're supposed to do? We're supposed to pray and say, Jesus, here it is again. And I gave you two cents just as a symbol. Obviously, everybody in this room has way more than two cents. Well, except, except for maybe Matt. <laughs> newlyweds are like that. They're, they're totally, <laughs> newlyweds with a new baby. They, they have nothing. So maybe, maybe uh, he, he'd go, look, we can go. We gave him two cents. Wow, we can go party. <laughs> but this two cents represents something to you. This represents what the Lord's given you. And it varies from person to person. And he's saying, if you want to enter in this generosity cycle, you've got to give this to me just like the woman did. And the way you do that, it's real simple. Well, years ago, some guys taught me this simple little prayer. If you ever want to give your life to Jesus, this is how you do it. You use three phrases that we use every day. I'm sorry, please, and thank you. You start with, I'm sorry. God, I'm sorry I've lived life on my own terms. I'm sorry I've been turned in on myself and I live with fear and greed and unbelief. And I run my own life. I want to give it back to you right now. Please forgive me of my sins. Cleanse me. Change me. Make me into a person that, that I'm meant to be. The best version of myself that I can be. 
And thank you for your gift of the Holy Spirit that I, I welcome into my life right now. When you do that, when you say, I'm sorry, please and thank you towards God and open your heart up to what Jesus wants to do in your life and you surrender everything to Him. Don't hold anything back. Give Him both pennies. Then you come to place, the second thing you have to do is this. You can't give more unless you start where you are. Wherever you are. Wherever you're at financially. Take these two pennies, and this is, I want you to think about this. What does God want you to do with the two pennies you have in terms of entering the cycle of generosity? I want you to, we're just going to pray for a second. I want to give you a second to think about and finish this I will statement, okay? I will fill in the blank. What does God want you to begin to give of your life financially, relationally, time, energy that you're not that, that right now you aren't giving because of unbelief or fear or greed and like the, the book cover says giving we receive grasping we lose what are you what is it costing you in your life because you're letting unbelief or fear or greed but especially fear keep you from entering in this cycle of generosity which God's designed for us to flourish in. Do you want to live outside that? That's an economy that, that is never going to have a recession. Now, I'll tell you something. There are times of testing. You know this little story? It doesn't say. It doesn't have a happy ending. We don't know what happened. This woman gave two. She gave everything she had. And inside, we, we think of that and go, what if she gets screwed what if she gets ripped off, you know? That's just your fear speaking. Some of us, it's our experience in life speaking. We've been let down. But go, Jesus showed us on the cross. He emptied himself out. He went to the cross for us. He was totally beaten. Totally ripped off. Died in our place. But then God raised him from the dead to vindicate the promise that God will be good. He will be good to you. If you're not entering into this cycle of generosity, you're letting fear keep you from good things that God has for you. And it's not all about money and prosperity. It's about other kinds of well-being. I think, actually, personally, my experience anecdotally is there's a whole bunch of other measures beyond the five that, that Smith and his, and his team identified. There's, there's dozens of positive outcomes that come when you enter into a life of generosity. But you have to start where you are. So what is it? I'm going to give you like one minute. I just want you to pray. Just close your eyes and say, God, what is it 